Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Welcome. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Second uh, Chronicles and First uh, Kings. First Kings 11 will be there most of the time. We'll also go to Second Chronicles. We are in our series called In the Lord's Sight, which is kind of a culmination of First Kings, Second Kings, Second Chronicles. Those books kind of overlap in their stories. It's the story of the history of Israel after kind of the period of Moses, the period of the judges, and then Israel wanted a king. God did not want his people to have a king. They demanded it. He told them and prophesied in Deuteronomy that they would want a king. He said, you shouldn't want one, but you're going to want one. And if you get one, this is all the stuff he's going to do to you. And um, they decided, well, we'd rather have a king and suffer those consequences then take the consequences we're living in, which is what we do, right? We'd rather get new consequences or think that we can solve our problems with our plans rather than just embracing the reality of our life, the reality of where we're at, and asking God to intervene and to change us instead of change everything around us. And that's exactly where God's people find themselves. And all the way through the book of Kings, we see many moms mentioned we see wars that will be fought over moms, sons that were born, and they fight with each other. And we saw that in David's reign with his sons, with his many wives. God didn't want his people to have many wives. They just chose to do that. And God still, with our mess, somehow finds a way to use our mess for his glory over and over again. Solomon has become king. We've looked at that over the last several weeks. Solomon was Bathsheba's son. Bathsheba was the woman that David committed adultery with and then killed her husband. And Solomon is now the one that's taking the throne and is on the throne. And now we come to the end of Solomon's life and he has completely wrecked the kingdom. And that's where we pick up the story. We pick up the story of the mess that God's people are in. And here's the deal. It doesn't look like they're in a mess. Things are going pretty well. There's peace. There's wealth in the nation. Seems like everything's going great. But in reality, God tells Solomon there's a mess coming because of the choices that have been made by you and by my people. And so we pick up that story in 2 Chronicles 9-12. I'm sorry, our title today is Turn. The idea is Turn. Why turn? Well, you're going to see as we read through these scriptures and go through some of these things, the word turn, you could also translate repent. <laughs> it's the same word. It's the idea of turning. You will always be turning to something or someone in your life. You can't do life alone. You're going to turn to the government. You're going to turn to your employer. You're going to turn to your bank account. You're going to turn to a relationship. You can't do life on your own. You weren't designed to do life on your own. You were designed to do life with God and in community. You were designed to live this life in this world and to prepare for eternal life and eternity that's coming. And so the reality is everything in this life is designed to get you to turn to it. That's marketing. When you're driving down the highway, you want to know why there are billboards? Not because they want you to turn into the billboard. They want you to be distracted off the road and look at a billboard. Now you're going to get arrested if you do that with your cell phone. But you can look at all the signs and crash into people all day long and, never, and it's just fine. Right? Everything in our culture is trying to get our attention. Look at me. Look at us. Isn't this what you want? Everything is demanding that. And Solomon 
has built a kingdom where he has not denied anyone anything and has built all this wealth so everybody can just turn and get whatever they want on demand when they want it, especially him. And so you live in this culture where now there's this ruling class and there's this poor class, this poverty class. Does this sound familiar? Like we live in the most prosperous nation in the world and this is the same mess that we find ourselves in. And so the question is, What turns you away from God and what turns you to other things? What is it in your heart that causes you to turn? To say, ooh, I like this now. Nope, don't like that anymore. I like this now. Oh, I like that. I want this. What are the things in your life that cause you to take your eyes off of Jesus, off of the reality that you're going to die and have to spend eternity somewhere, and instead turn to something else that doesn't matter, that's temporary, that causes you to go a different direction when God says, please repent, turn back to me. And can I just tell you, moms, you will, whether you like it or not, teach your children to turn to something. They are watching you. If you turn to grumbling and complaining, that's what they're going to do. If you turn to, you know, be a, be a workaholic, that's, that's what your kids are going to see. If If you turn to be overly protective, then your kids are going to rebel against that. You've got to teach, we, not just moms, all of us have got to teach people to turn to the Lord. That that's the focus that he has to have. And all the way through these scriptures and through the Old Testament, you see these mothers who are trying to get things to turn their way. They're warring with one another. Their sons are fighting with one. Everybody's trying to get things to turn the way they want it to be. And women, you particularly have the ability to turn the hearts of men because God designed it that way. In Eden, God formed Adam and then he took Eve and formed her from Adam and Adam called her, whoa, man. Like, wow, He was turned towards her. Like, you have a power that God has given you to turn the hearts of men, either towards you and towards the world or towards Jesus and towards eternity. You have it. God has given it to you. It is a gift. And it can be a curse. And men are watching. They are. And some men are trying to destroy you because they don't want you to get them to turn to the Lord. They want to get you to turn to what they want you to turn to. And so as we jump into 2 Chronicles, here's the tragedy of King David, a great man, led the people well to Solomon, and they're at the highest prosperity that God's people have ever been in in history. The Jews will never be at this level of prosperity again. This is like 1950s America, right here. There'll never be a level of prosperity that the Jews will ever be in than this level. And they got there because they were just so wicked. And God's finally had enough. So we pick it up in 2 Chronicles 9, 12. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba, that's one of his wives, who turned his heart, everything she desired, whatever she asked. Without question. He didn't ask, does God want her to have it? Should I give it? Nope. She has turned me towards her. She gets whatever. Ain't mama happy, ain't nobody happy. Ever heard that? That is a lie from the pit of hell, just so you know. If you have that attitude in your home, then you have created a fear of mom that isn't healthy. 
Now, that doesn't mean mom should be miserable. You should love your mother. But when you have that attitude where she reigns in the home above God himself, that is not a healthy place. And moms, you don't want to be there because eventually the home's going to hate you. It's going to turn on you. The home's going to be done with you because you didn't turn them to anything more than you and then you're going to fail and they're like, we're done with you. But if you turn your children to Christ and to eternity, they will always remember that and they will always know that even though you screwed up, even though you did terrible things, there is grace, there's forgiveness, there's mercy, there is hope and that we are going to be together forever. And so Solomon does this. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. That was his first wife. He wasn't supposed to marry a foreign woman because God told him they're going to turn his hearts. Look at what it says. Later it says, from the nations the Lord had told the Israelites about, do not intermarry with them. In other words, don't intermarry with people who don't believe in Yahweh. What are you doing trying to attract the attention and getting people to turn to you? You get them to turn to Yahweh. It doesn't mean you can't marry an Egyptian. It's just they have to convert to be an Israelite. That's it. You know how many people in the Bible that are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus who were Moabites, who were other races, who turned and surrendered to Yahweh and then got married by godly men because they were no longer Moabites? They were Israelites. They were adopted in. So God's not saying you can't marry them. He's saying, why are you intermarrying with them if they haven't surrendered their life to the Lord? They haven't given up. They haven't turned away from their idolatry, turned away from all their desires that they want and their family and all the stuff and baggage and turned completely to me. Solomon didn't care about that because Solomon is all about getting the women to look at him, getting all the women for himself. He goes on and it says, do not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you, because they will turn you away from me to their gods. Solomon was deeply attached to these women, and he loved them. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. You're trying to please that many women, yeah, you're going to be turned away from the Lord. That's 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women that he probably had children with. You know how many kids that is? That's insane. And again, things are going really well. They're, they're doing well at this point. And then it says, when Solomon was old, his wives seduced him to follow other gods. He was not completely devoted to Yahweh. In other words, he turned. His God as his father David had been. You see, David sinned. David was a wreck. But David always turned back to the Lord. David always went back to God and repented and surrendered and said, I'm done. I've done it again. He didn't just keep turning and going the wrong direction. Thinking, well, it's going okay, so God must be happy with me. I'll just keep going this way. That was not David. David continued to seek the Lord's heart even in the midst of his struggles. So what happens in all this? Well, look at 1 Kings 11.9. It says, The Lord was very angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, and it appeared to him twice. God had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. But God warned him. 
God said, hey, be careful. This is what's going to happen. Don't go this way. And Solomon said, nah, things are going well. It's all working out. Things are pretty good for me. What? No, I'm just going to marry another woman because you didn't kill me when I married the last one, so I guess I can marry another and then another and another and another because things are going well. And obviously, if things are going well, then God, you're blessing me. And obviously, you're not mad at me or things would go badly. God's like, that has my mercy to not smite you has nothing to do with whether you're actually walking with me or not. That just means I'm a really merciful God, is what God says. I'm just really merciful. And if you recognize that like David did, your heart turns back to him, unlike Solomon who just got more and more and more and more wicked because things went better and better and better for him. So why turn? Why change? Everything's going well. I got everything I want in life. Everything seems to be, until the end of his life, when Solomon looks around and he realizes how miserable he is and he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, you are going to turn your kids your husband, your wife, either towards God or away from him. There is no middle ground. In this life, there's no middle ground. You can't just coast. You are either every day choosing to turn to God and turn others to God, or you are choosing to turn away from God and turn others to something else, probably you. I expect everybody to be there for me, to turn to me. Or you do the codependent thing, which is, oh, I'm going to give myself to everybody because just maybe if I do that, people will recognize themselves, recognize that they need to give themselves to me. So you're earning the love and trying to earn a relationship, which is not going to work. And Solomon realizes this. God tells him, then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant... In other words, the agreement we had, Solomon made an agreement with God. He, there was the eternal agreement God made with the Israelites and with David. There was going to be a forever agreement. We looked at that last week. And then Solomon had an if agreement where God said, if you do this, I will have someone from your line sit on the throne, not just from your father's line sit on the throne. Remember, David, right? The bloodline of Jesus is not traced back to Solomon. It's traced back to Nathan. Because Solomon didn't keep the covenant, so Solomon didn't get the bloodline. Now, Joseph, who was the adopted father of Jesus, gave Jesus the legal right to be king through Solomon, but not the blood right. Isn't that amazing how God fits all that together? That God keeps his word so perfectly for a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years? And yet we look and go, I can't trust this. It's written by man. I can't trust this stuff. Are you kidding me? This book is unbelievable. He goes on and he says, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime because of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. You will not tear out the entire kingdom away from him. I will give him one trap. One tribe to your son because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem that I chose. Solomon has built the greatest temple, one of the seven wonders of the world ever built. He has created the greatest Israelite empire that will ever exist and God doesn't acknowledge that he's done anything. Read it. You haven't done anything. 
The only reason I'm having mercy on you is because there's been a guy that prayed for a long time for you. His name's David. And he was faithful and tried to raise you and tried to raise you. And he was a terrible father. He didn't know what he was doing. You can read about the stories. But you know what? He always came back to me. And you haven't followed the example of your father. And so you know what's going to happen, Solomon? I am not going to do this to you. You're going to go ahead and have the good life, Solomon. You're going to die wealthy and happy and fat and peaceful and everything else for the most part. But your sons, it's going to be awful. And the only reason I'm not doing it to you is because of your father's prayers. But here's the deal, Solomon. You didn't pray for your kids. There's nothing protecting them because you built a kingdom to protect your kids that I'm going to rip apart. Your dad built a spiritual prayer kingdom for you. Don't miss that. It's the same garbage we do today. Don't miss it. Any parent, regardless of their wealth or their poverty, can give a spiritual heritage to their children by seeking the Lord, turning to Him, praying and seeking His face, period. And it is a greater legacy than any wealth, any retirement, anything else you can receive for eternity. So Solomon, you wrote a lot of good books, you had a lot of good sayings, you, you did all these things, but I'm going to have to tear this apart. But you know what? In my mercy, because of your father David, not because of you, but because of your father David, I'm going to spare your grandson the complete disgrace. His grandson the complete disgrace. I'll give him one try. One. You see, here's what happens in our culture. I've seen this over and over again. You see, and Solomon here, by the way, can't blame all the women. Do you you notice this? Solomon's not, like, God doesn't come and say, all those women, Solomon, turned you away. He's like, no, this is all on you, buddy. Yeah, you married all of them, and they turned them away, but you made every decision and every choice. So don't blame the moms. Don't blame the women. You were to lead as a man. You were to give your life. You were to die, and you didn't. You used everybody for your gain, and now everybody sees it, and now everybody's going to recognize it. So don't be pointing the finger at mom. You have to own your choices, and you chose all this, Solomon. You see, here's the deal. What I see over and over again in our culture, when God's trying to build a church, because this is a bride, the church is called his bride, right? Jesus is the bridegroom. It's the number one way he describes his people other than shepherd and sheep, okay? The shepherd and sheep one just means we're dumb sheep and he's smart because he's the shepherd. That's, at least he gives us the bride and husband example because at least there's something we can do in that relationship. The sheep shepherd one, all we get is like we get our hair cut off and like killed, slaughtered for sacrifice and that's it. And people eat us. That's, I mean, so, so the, the bride and the bridegroom, it's this perfect picture that Jesus gives. Can, can I just tell you? Over and over again, you can watch the pattern of how we do this in our culture. We're all about our families. Then we realize, wow, we, can't, we need help because we can't control our kids and we can't do this, so we need a church. So then we go to a church. And then, and then the church promises as people come to the church and they start helping people, that we're going to build a big building. We're going to build a temple. We're going to leverage everything. And everybody's going to sacrifice and give all their stuff to build this big temple. And 
And then we forgot to budget to maintain the temple. And so now we got to sacrifice more to maintain the temple. And then people start getting mad and they leave and they turn away from the vision you had because it's a lot harder than you said it was going to be. You said the solution was going to be build the big temple and it's going to get easier. It's getting harder. I don't know about you. It's much easier to maintain a three-bedroom home than a seven-bedroom home. A three-bedroom home, one-and-a-half bath is a lot easier than a seven-bedroom, five-bath house to maintain. A lot easier. But we think if we get the big, that's, oh, we're doing better, bigger, smarter, faster. It's like, maybe not. And over and over again, what you can see in churches in our culture is when they start going down this way of Solomon, where you're stealing wives, where there's sweet sheep swapping going on, where you're building your church because you're the new popular church in town everybody's flooding to, like Solomon, but you're not confronting any of their idolatry. You're not confronting. You can't bring that into God's house. You can't keep acting that way. And then you leverage to build something big so you can prove, look, God's with us. We raised all this. We built, oh, look. And every time you see this happen, it's almost every time there's a church split soon after that. And that's exactly what's getting ready to happen to God's people. And we keep repeating the pattern in our culture. Why? Listen, I don't know if I have the right answers. I just don't want to keep doing these patterns. So I really don't know what I'm doing half the time. I'll just be honest as a pastor. But I don't want to keep doing the same stupid stuff. So let's try something different. I'd rather fail doing something different than the same stuff that just keeps leading to the same things. But you know what? People want the same old, same old. They want the routine and they don't want to be challenged and called out and be confronted like Solomon was and tell, be told to turn. And you know what? Well, if my grandkids have to suffer, well, then that's up to them. Too bad for them. It's just how it's going to be. Too bad for you. We tried to build a good world for you. And look, you just, you know, you're going to mess it all up. Really? Did you really try to build a spiritual kingdom for your children, your grandchildren? I'm telling you, we keep making the same mistakes. So he goes on, and what does God do to get Solomon's attention? Because Solomon, how did he end up writing Ecclesiastes? Well, first God curses him. He tells him, this is what's going to happen. And now Solomon has to make a choice. Am I broken over this, or am I just like, oh, well. But this is what God does. Look at this. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself. Remember, God in chapter 7, when he built the temple, this is what he told Solomon. If I choose the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, whatever I choose to do to get your attention, you have to make a choice of how you're going to respond. So with Solomon, he's told him, I'm going to get your attention by what's going to happen to your son. You're not going to see it in your lifetime. You're just going to have to think forward of how this... Now, do I have your attention, Solomon? He says, My people... If I send pestilence on my people and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn towards my face, look at me. There's nothing more frustrating as a mom than to try to talk to your child and, she, and he, they won't look at you. Look at me when I'm talking to you. No, no, not looking at you. Ah. Like, it's like, yeah, you want to grab him and just be like, and then you like try to stare at them and they're like, mm. I mean, they still won't look at you. Because we're that prideful. 
God's just, he's like, I just want you to turn to me. Would you turn? Like the next time you have a problem, how about you turn to scripture? How about you turn to my people? Why are you constantly turning to the internet and Google and running to the doctor? Or what? It's not wrong to go to the doctor, but why is it you don't first turn, pray, and seek me? Then he says, so you've got to turn and pray and seek me. You've got to humble yourself first. Turn from their evil ways. Then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Remember, this is not our land. We are not Israelites. The United States of America does not have a covenant with God. It was not signed. God did not sign a covenant. He did not send a calf to be split in half with America. Okay? We don't. As Christians, our land covenant is heaven. It's a new earth. God said, you don't get one here. I've already fulfilled the land covenant to the Israelites. I brought them into land. I've already done that already. I'm going to do it again someday. I'm going to give the Israelites the full covenant that I promised. But our land is not here, which is why Jesus says, which we looked at last week, we've got to be building for heaven, building spiritual souls and spiritual things. This isn't our land. So when he says, I'll forgive their sin and heal their land, we use this. This is like the favorite verse of Americans for the last 50 years to pray for our country to get better. This isn't my land. I love my country. God's put me here. I'm supposed to submit to the rules and authorities. I'm supposed to like, try to help this place prosper. All of those things God says in Scripture, but this is not my land. This is not my home. And you want to know why I know it's not my land? Because Tuesday of this week, I had to go to the courthouse and pay a bill to the courthouse that said, this is not your house or your land. It's called taxes. If I don't go to the courthouse and pay my taxes, I get a letter and they tell me, we're selling your house in a sheriff's sale. You have no say. We're going to put it up for auction. You're done. The government reminds me twice a year, paying taxes, we let you live here. This isn't yours. We give you permission to own this house at a cost. The God of heaven says, the place I have for you to live is free of charge. And there are no taxes. There's no works you have to keep it. It is a free gift. And I'm building it for you. You just need to start sending stuff ahead to fill the house I'm building. Solomon forgets this. And so he forgets that this is what he says. He says, my eyes are now open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. Remember, he says place. That's Jerusalem, not the temple. That's Jerusalem, and someday God is going to bring a new temple, a new city, a new Jerusalem, and he's going to put it on the earth. That's what Revelation says. He goes on, you know, and he says that our hearts are the new temples, not some temple we're chasing. 1 Kings eleven fourteen says this, so how did God get Solomon's attention at the end of his life? It says, so the Lord raised up Hadad, the Edomite, as an enemy against Solomon. Here God in his incredible mercy will send you problems to get you to turn. Because you won't turn any other way. You won't. You won't do it. When things are going well, you think God's blessing you, and I just got to keep doing that stuff so I don't lose it. Because I won't lose anything. What? You didn't earn it. What does it matter if God says, if I send rain, if I send pestilence, it's not your call. It's on, I get to decide that because I'm God. And we made an agreement. 
You give your life, you surrender your life, now you live your life here on earth for me, and I give you the riches and glory of heaven forever. Anything you want is not like, oh, well, I think I want to trade that in for just some stuff here now. No. He goes on, he says, an enemy against Solomon. He was of the royal family of Eden. Earlier when David was in Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, had gone to bury the dead and struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel had remained there six months until he had killed every male in Edom. Remember, God did not tell Joab to do that. And later, that's what caused Joab to be killed. Solomon killed Joab because he was so ruthless. It goes on and it says, Hadad fled to Egypt along with some Edomites from his father's servants. At the time, Hadad was a small boy. Pharaoh liked Hadad so much he gave him a wife. Remember, Solomon had married one of Pharaoh's daughters, but now there's probably a new Pharaoh in town and a new daughter, and so that old Pharaoh and that old marriage, they're done. The new one trumps it. So now no longer is is Israel going to have the blessing of Egypt because there's a new guy who has the blessing of Egypt. You see, Christians have been living under the blessing of the freedom of America for a long time, while our brothers and sisters around the world mostly have been dying and persecuted for their faith. And for the first time, we're getting hammered a little bit, and we're like panicking. Instead of looking around the world and going, maybe we can learn from our brothers and sisters in other countries who didn't compromise and went to their death. That doesn't mean we don't pray for the welfare of our country. We don't pray that things would change, that we would repent. Yes, yes, and amen. But here God raises up an enemy to get Solomon's attention. He doesn't just raise up one. Look, he raises up another. God raised up Rezon, the son of Alada, as an enemy against Solomon. Rezon had fled from his master, Hadadezar, son of Zobah, and gathered men to himself. He became captain of a raiding party when David killed the Zoabites. Like, These are enemies that have been hurt by the church, hurt by God's people, many of them unrighteously, and now it's all coming back on God's people. God's just saying, I'm just going to do the right thing now. I'm going to allow the judgment to come back. And so now Solomon has these enemies that cause him to be humbled because things aren't going so well. And now he sees, oh my goodness, it's not going to go well for my children and grandkids. There are enemies in the land. There are things we've done. There's a mess coming. Now what do I do? And instead of leading his people to repentance, instead of leading his people to tear down the high places, instead of confronting his wives on their idolatry and confronting the mess of his culture, Solomon just got depressed and went along with it and said, well, good luck, fear God, obey his commands. It's the best you can hope for. He's king. He could call a repentance and he could call people to death if they don't worship Yahweh. By the way, two kings do that. We'll see later. You either repent and submit to Yahweh and we tear down the high places to get rid of it or you're done, period. Now, we don't have that authority as believers. Why? Glad you asked. Matthew, you have heard it said, Jesus' first sermon, this is what he preaches. You have heard it said that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Where did that come from? It comes from Leviticus 17. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly. 
and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. That, that's, that's what he says. Now, love, according to the biblical love, we'll see in a second, is not how we define love. See, we define love as how can I make you happy? Because ain't mama happy, ain't nobody happy. If dad's mad, then everybody's going to be in trouble. So let's just keep everybody happy. That is not love. That is wicked. That's how you end up in a lot of messes. Love is saying, what does God say I need to do? Do I need to die or do I need to fight today? Because sometimes the loving thing to do is to die when you feel like fighting, and sometimes the loving thing to do is to fight instead of dying. And you don't know unless you're walking with the Lord, closely with him. He goes on, Luke says this, Jesus is telling the story of the good Samaritan who saves the Jew that's beat up by the side of the road, and the question was asked to him, who is my neighbor Jesus says, which of these three, there were three religious people who passed by the guy that was all beat up, two religious people, and then the Samaritan who passed by and cared for the man. The Samaritans are what we're getting ready to see are the northern kingdom of Israel that broke away and became wicked. They were hated by the southern kingdom that was righteous under Solomon and Judah. And he says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said, then Jesus told him, go and do the same. You see, you can, I've said this before, you can mercilessly kill someone or you can mercifully kill someone. Sometimes people have to die. We'd all be Nazis if we didn't decide that. If the world didn't decide, sometimes people have to die because it's just too costly to, to let them continue to do their evil then we'd all be Nazis. You see, this is a hard thing that we have to wrestle with and we have to go before God. Romans says this, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Look at that. The only way to truly love is to love from God's law. Like you have to know what God says is loving and what isn't loving. And if you don't, you will twist it to your advantage, which is exactly what Solomon did. He had the best worship service ever on the planet with the most players, and he had the songbook of songbooks written by his father, and it was a show, man. It was a show when Solomon put on a worship service. And he didn't fulfill the law. He didn't hold anybody to the righteousness of God. The commandments, do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and whatever other commandment. I love that. Jesus like, whatever other commandment you can think of. He says, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. The reason the commands are there and you need to know them is because you don't know how to properly love people. Moms, you don't know how to properly love your kids. Dads, you don't know how to properly love. You don't know how to do it. But the word of God and God himself given through the word and what he does shows you how to love. Even if you disagree with God, it's like, well, that's still what he says to do, so I better do it. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. How do I know if I'm doing wrong? Again, God's word. Therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, jump to the end of that passage, and make no plans to satisfy fleshly desires. If you truly want to love people, if you truly want to turn people to God, 
You have got to be a person that says, Jesus is my Lord. That means he's in control of my life. He is the Yahweh who saves, and he is the Messiah. I'm not looking for anybody else to come in my life and save me from my loneliness, my misery, or anything else, because he is everything. And the way to prove that you believe that is you don't satisfy the stuff you want, your flesh, your emotion, the wants. Paul's like, that's how you can know if you're really loving people. Do you point them to the Lord Jesus Christ, to a Savior, a Messiah, a Lord that they desperately need, and do you not try to manipulate them, but just surrender yourself to serve? See, the most satisfying and most loving thing you can do is not satisfy your flesh. And you know what? That's the picture of the Lord's Supper. That Jesus didn't satisfy his own body, he gave his body. And every time we take communion, we recognize that Jesus did not satisfy his flesh. He gave his blood and his flesh on our behalf. And he asks us to do the same. You want to know why? Because there's a resurrection for us. I don't need this body. I got a new one coming. (laughs) It's amazing how you treat a rental car versus your car, right? This is my rental car, man. I'm getting a new one someday. This is... I need to treat this rental car good because somebody else owns it and I represent the guy who's driving it, but I also know it's not permanent. I got to turn it in here soon, right? So if there's a rattle or something wrong with it, I'm not begging God. I'm not like calling him and saying, hey, you need to fix this rattle. I'm like, hey, your car's got a rattle. I've got to keep driving though. You send out mechanic if it breaks down. (laughs) That's what you do with rentals. Matthew says this, Jesus goes on to say when he's talking about loving your neighbor, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ha! Think about this. Look, look up here. Who persecutes you more than any other creature on the face of the planet? Your children. You, like, you, number one, you persecute yourself. Your children are like terrorists from the time they're born. They do nothing but persecute you and tell you how you don't measure up and how awful you are, and I hate you. Like, it's like, what happened to you? You're like this little wicked being. What happened? Like, one minute they're like, Mom, you're the best, and the next minute you're like, no, we can't get ice cream. I hate you. I hope you die. And like, what happened? Over ice cream? Yeah, pray for those little ones who persecute you. Pray for them. Solomon forgot that because he had it so easy. that So that you may be sons. Look at that. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Because you know what Jesus is doing for you in heaven? Right now, he's praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf so God doesn't smite and destroy you. Because he is the Son of God, and that's what sons do. They pray. They seek their Father for the benefit of the rest of the family. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's like we all have to experience the same stuff. Nobody gets out of it. Jeremiah tells the people, you know, when I send you to where I'm going to banish you, in other words, we don't get heaven yet. We have to wait to get heaven, but we live in all these different places all over the world. He says, wherever I send you, I want you to multiply there. Don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city you live in that I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. In other words, can keep turning to God on behalf of sons, on behalf of moms and dads and your city and people. Keep turning to God. Keep Keep turning to God. Don't turn away from him. But it's not getting better. It may not get better. 
But it's going so well, if I'm afraid if I turn to God, he might ask me to stop doing it. Yep, he might. It's not your call, not mine either. You see, in Jesus' day, they were trying to build a place for the presence of God, and they compromised in every way to build it. You see, they thought that all their prosperity meant blessing. And what Jesus taught in Matthew 5 before he gives this sermon on neighbor is he says this, the poor in spirit are blessed. The word blessed there means happy. The poor in spirit, those who know I'm nothing. I got nothing in me. I got nothing to offer. Okay, those people, they understand that happiness isn't found in themselves. It's not found in this world, that they are poor without God. And he said, those people, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God offers it free. It's yours if you want it. You can stay in your misery. You can stay poor and miserable, or you can have me. And then he says, look at this, those who mourn are blessed. Because see, once you understand how poor you are, you recognize everyone else is poor and you start weeping over the lostness of people. And you mourn over them. And then God brings you comfort. You want to know how he comforts you? He brings you a church family. He brings you to see people have salvation and come to know him and people repent and change their lives. And all of a sudden, all that mourning and praying you're doing is starting to really hype you up. Because God's doing some cool stuff. And then it says, the gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Because, you know, when you start mourning, you can get really angry about fixing stuff. i got to fix this. Versus saying, God, you got this under control. I just want to be gentle. And then he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. Because once you start being gentle, you realize, but sometimes I don't know what the right thing to do is. So I need to hunger and thirst for God's word so I know when and how gentle looks. Otherwise, I just let people get run over and I don't defend the innocent which God calls me to. And then he says, the merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy. That when you have to act, when you have to like bring power, the word there in the original Hebrew, I'm sorry, the original Greek is meek. It means power under control. It's meekness. So when you have to bring power after you've been, when you've got to start the power, he says, be careful when you bring the power because you need to be sure you do it mercifully. And they'll be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed. Did you do that power because, or was it pure of heart? Because the pure of heart will see God. They will turn and see. And the peacemakers are blessed for they will be called sons of God. Peacemaker doesn't mean you're constantly just trying to make peace. That's what Solomon did. A peacemaker back in the day was like a, some kind of weapon. This is a peacemaker, right? Jesus someday is going to bring his peace, but it's not going to be through, hey, everybody, I'm here. Good to see you. He's going to bring a sword to show that there is no peace without death. And there's no peace for you and me without death. Once we die, if we know Christ, we will have a peace that passes all understanding. Then he goes on and he says, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. See, you can be persecuted for the wrong thing. If you do all this stuff wrongly, then you're getting persecuted for the wrong. But if you do it rightly, then the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you, persecute you, and falsely say every kind of evil against you. Look at this, because of me. Most of the time when you're persecuted and evil is said against you, it's because you're an idiot. Me too, right? Like I deserve every bit of what they're telling me. And I look and I go, yeah, yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah. But if you have a heart for God like David and you turn back to God, then you can look at people and say, ah, yeah, I deserve that. But you know what? You need to repent and I need to repent. 
We need to turn to God. And if we do that, he says, be glad and rejoice. Because anytime you go through that process, you realize, oh yeah, it's not about here. It's about heaven. You see, God sent these enemies. Jesus came and gave these radical messages in these sermons to point us to turn to him. First Kings goes on and says, Now Solomon's servant Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was an Ephraimite from Zerada. So here's what, it's getting re- all the mess is getting ready to happen. His widowed mother's name was Zerah. Talks about a mom. We don't know why, other than he had a widowed mom. He had to take care of his mom growing up. You see, people who have to take care of a mom like that, they're really sensitive typically to injustice. They're super sensitive to injustice because they've seen their mom abused. And as a man, if you're really a man, oh, that'll fire you up. And it says, Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon, and this is the reason he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and repaired the opening in the wall of the city of his father David. Oh, good. Solomon's building stuff. This is great. He's repairing stuff. Oh, Nice job. Look at what he said. Now the young man Jeroboam was capable, and Solomon noticed the young man because he was getting things done, so he appointed him over the entire labor force of the house of Joseph. Oh, things are going well for this young man. Jeroboam is knocking it out of the park. Why? Well, he's used to taking care of a mom. He's used to getting stuff done. He's used to being the guy that doesn't have anybody to help, and i got to get it done. It says, during that time, the prophet Ahijah, the Silonite, met Jeroboam on the road as Jeroboam came out of Jerusalem. Now Ahijah had wrapped himself with a new cloak, and the two of them were alone in the open field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he had on. He tore it into 12 pieces and said to Jeroboam, Take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord of Israel says. I'm about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands. I will give you 10 tribes, but one tribe will remain because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem, the city I chose out of all the tribes of Israel. For they have abandoned me. Look, it doesn't say this is all because of Solomon. It says everybody else followed Solomon. Nobody challenged Solomon. Nobody challenged anybody. They just kept going along with it because it was working. Just keep going along because it just seems to be going great. Everything's going fine. Don't challenge anything. And God's like, you're just as guilty as he is because none of you ever went to my word. You just said, well, it works, do it. What does my word say? I don't know, but it works. He goes on, he says, For they have abandoned me, they have bowed the knee to Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and to Chemosh, the god of Moab, and to Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. The god of Milcom, you actually sacrificed your children. You gave your children so you could have the life you wanted. Sound familiar? That we live in a culture that tells women, you don't want to have that kid because you want the life you want. It's the same God just in a different form. Now, don't blame the women because where are the men that were involved in that process that we're not holding accountable? And where's the church to step up to be sure those women are taken care of? That's why we pray for the Hannah Center. That's why we support the Hannah Center. It's why Christians used to take people into their home to care for them. See, we've got to turn back to God, not bow to the idols and turn to them. And so now Ahijah has told Jeroboam, this is what's going to happen. He goes on to say, They have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and carry out my statutes, my judgments, as his father David did. However, I will not take the whole kingdom from his hand, but he will, 
but will let him be a ruler all the days of his life because of my servant David, who I chose, who kept my commands and my statutes. I will take 10 tribes of the kingdom and his son's hands and give them to you. I will give one tribe to his son so that my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city I chose for myself to put my name there. I will appoint you and you will reign as king over all you want and you will be king over all of Israel. Man, what an opportunity. Jeroboam's been working his tail off. He's he's a widowed son. He's not recognized. Like, oh, wow. But look what happens. After that, Jeroboam, if, if you obey all I commanded you, that means the whole Testament. Not just this command, it means Everything God said in the book, everything I commanded you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes, my commands, as my servant David did. That's the Bible up to that time. I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built it for David, and I will give you Israel. I will humble David's descendants because of their unfaithfulness, but not forever. Because I'm merciful. I don't just judge forever. There's an end to judgment. See, God's love endures forever. His judgment is going to be finished someday and there'll be no judgment ever again. Do you realize that? He goes on, he says, Therefore Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, where he remained until Solomon's death. See, so Jeroboam wasn't asking for this, but now Jeroboam has to decide how he's going to respond. The rest of Solomon's reign, along with all his accomplishments and his wisdom, are written in the book of Solomon's events. The length of Solomon's reign over Jerusalem, over all of Israel, totaled 40 years. Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. His son Rehoboam became king in his place. So now you have Jeroboam and Rehoboam, two guys, a servant and the son of the king. And there's going to come an option. Which are you going to turn to? 1 Kings 12.1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, for he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from King Solomon's presence. Isn't it interesting? Who was the other guy that had to flee from the presence of an Israeli king trying to kill him because he didn't want to lose his kingdom? That's right. King Saul, who was trying to kill Solomon's dad, David. Now Solomon has become the King Saul. He has so abandoned his father's ways, he is literally the man that was trying to kill his father. Don't think you can't become that, and don't think that you won't end up there if you turn away from God. You will. He goes on and he says, Jeroboam stayed in Egypt. Then they they summoned Jeroboam, and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father, look at this, made our yoke difficult. You therefore lighten your father's harsh service. And the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. You remember, Solomon made all the Israelites slaves. Not the Israelites, the foreigners slaves. He he commissioned the Israelites to have to work for almost nothing, to build all his stuff for the glory of God to support his 700 wives and 300 concubines and his palace and his walls and his chariots and his gold and everything else Solomon wanted, all for the glory of God. And here we are. And Jeroboam, who is the widowed son, right, who's been fighting and scrapping and everything else, comes to represent God's people and says, hey, Do you think you can be different than your father Solomon was? Do you you think you can be more like your 
grandfather David? Do you think you could not keep abusing people? It goes on. Here's what Matthew says about Jesus. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for you, the child to destroy him. See, this is the same narrative. See, God, just like he saves people, eventually he redeems. So God calls who? Not Jeroboam out of Egypt. He calls his own son out of Egypt to redeem what Jeroboam is getting ready to mess up. See, God always brings things back around for redemption. He always takes a story that's a disaster, and through Jesus, he spins it around to be the success, that the real king that gets called out of Egypt will be like this guy, Jesus, not like Jeroboam. Then it goes on. It says, so they got up, took the child and his mother during the night. They escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that when, so what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. We go on in the story. Rehoboam replied, go home for three days and then return to me. So the people left. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, how do you advise me? So he, he, he talks to the old guys, right, that many of them might have still been alive and been young guys at the time of David, right? So they got a little bit of knowledge. They, they understand the difference between David and Solomon, and this is our opportunity to bring repentance to the nation. Look at what he says. They replied, today if you will be a servant to these people and serve them instead of them serving you, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words, God's words, turn away from what your dad did and turn to what God does with his people, that God is kind, he's truthful. He doesn't ask his people to serve in any way that he didn't become a servant. They will be your servants forever. You got a chance here. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders who advised him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and served him. I want to talk to the people who tell me what I want to hear. The people who are young, who want to use my reign and get in good with me now so that they can prosper later. The old guys, they're getting ready to die. They don't need, they're like, dude, we're out of here. So we're just going to tell you the truth. That's what old people do. It's great. Old people are great at that. Like, yeah, you're nuts. Have a nice life. I won't be here when you screw it all up. And that's, that's beautiful, right? The young guys, they're trying to use this to their advantage. They're trying to smooth. Oh, we want to tell, so we want to tell Rehoboam what he wants to hear. And we want him to reign. This is exactly what the disciples tried to do with Jesus. Do you remember that? Jesus is like, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be the ultimate servant. Peter's like, I've got a sword. I'm not going to let you go. And Jesus is like, you saintness, get behind me. He literally calls him a saintness. He's like, get behind me. Who are you worshiping? I mean, it's like, that's kind of harsh that he said that to poor Peter. Peter thought he's like, yeah, we're going to take on. He's like, no, I'm going to do what Rehoboam wouldn't do. I'm going to be the servant king who dies, not the one who asks all of you to pick up swords and kill everybody. It goes on and it says, he asked his young guys, what message do you advise that we send back to these people who said to me, lighten the yoke of your father to put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him told him, this is what you should say to these people who said this to you. Your father made our yoke heavy, but, but you, you make it lighter on us? That is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I'll add to your yokes. My father's disciplined you with whips, but I'll discipline you with barbed whips. What was Jesus disciplined with? A barbed whip. 
cat of nine tails, ripped his back wide open. See, God doesn't do anything to his people. He redeems everything that's ever been done to you. He takes it. This is no small thing. See, we love to surround our people with ourselves with people who won't tell us the, the truth and what we need to hear, and instead, that will tickle our ears, the New Testament says. That's exactly what Rehoboam does. Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had ordered. The third day, isn't that when the resurrection happened? Oh yeah, that's right. The third day they went and found the resurrection, thinking, oh now Jesus is going to come back, he's going to be the king, he's going to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus like, is like, no, I'm just going to teach you how to be a servant. And then I'm going to disappear into heaven, and you're going to have to be left here to serve. So Jeroboam and the people did. They returned to him. Then the king answered the people harshly, rejected the advice the elders had given him, and spoke to them according to the young men's advice. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbs whips. The king did not listen to the people because his turn of events came from the Lord to carry out his word, which the Lord had spoken through Ahijah, the, Shil- the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, son of Nebat. In other words, God says, I'm still sovereign. I've orchestrated all this. I gave all the warnings knowing they wouldn't listen, but I gave the warnings so that you can see and that I can see and all of us can see that God is always in control. He always has it. See, God didn't make this happen. He just knew it was going to happen. He knew this is what they're going to choose. He does this all the way through. I knew you were going to choose a king. I don't want you to choose a king. I knew you were going to build a temple. I didn't ask for a temple. I knew you were going to do this, but there you go. And God provides a way for us always to turn back to him even though we do this kind of stuff. Goes on in Matthew, this is what Jesus says. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son desires to reveal to him. Look at this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will hit you with barbed whips. I'll give you rest. You see, God knows the burden we carry in this life. God knows that he's asked us to be in a war. He knows that we're carrying a tremendous burden on this side of eternity. You are going to die badly, most likely. We all, I'm just telling you, most people don't die in their sleep peacefully. It just doesn't happen very often. God knows that, so he says, you can be confident that I will give you rest from all that mess. You can have confidence in me. All of you, take up my yoke. Look at that. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm not like Rehoboam. I'm not like Jeroboam. And you will find rest for yourselves for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Acts says this, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did us. He made no distinction between them, us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And then why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples next that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? That's the yoke of works, trying to work our way to get to God. You can't bear it. That's not the yoke we're supposed to carry. On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, Yahweh, who is Yahweh who saves, in the same way everybody else is saved. Nobody's saved any other way. There is one way to salvation, and the reason there's one way is because there's only one king. 
Galatians says, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't keep turning back to that slavery. Take note. I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourself circumcised, that's like to prove something. I can do these religious things to prove something. Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law if you do that. You're going to call yourself a Jew and get yourself circumcised? You got to do all the Jewish stuff. You got to have it both ways. Then he goes on, he says, you are trying to be justified by the law, your works, you're alienated from Christ. Stop that. Turn from that and turn to Christ. Trust him and allow him to do the works through you that he wants you to do. Then he says, for through the spirit by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We're not going to make things right in this world, but we hope that someday God will come and make it right. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Instead of trusting our own kingdoms and instead of trusting what we want, we have faith through love. And that's what moms do the best. Teach their children how to have faith and love for others. There's nothing you can do more as a mother than to show your kids that they have to trust God and they have to love people even at the cost of their own benefit. First Kings says, When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, Israel. Return to your tents. David, now look after your own house. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the Israelites living in the cities of Judah. Then the king Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. How many nations get split over labor issues? Almost all of them. Because labor issues are, we're using people to get something. And he says, so they stoned him to death. King Rehoboam managed to get into the chariot and flee to Jerusalem. Israel is in rebellion against the house of David until this day, and they're still in rebellion. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they summoned him to the assembly, made him king over Israel. No one followed the house of David except the tribe of Judah alone and Benjamin. That's a long story, but the reason there were 11 tribes and one was given is because by this point, the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely eliminated in the book of Judges, if you go back and read. And the, rem- the remnants of the tribe of Benjamin that existed were living in Judah, particularly around Jerusalem. There wasn't much of them left. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mobilized 180 warriors from the entire house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Jer- Solomon. But a revelation from God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. You are not to march and fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Love your neighbor as yourself. You brought this mess on your own self. Don't go try to kill them for it. You own it. Each of you must return to his home, for I have done this, the Lord says. So they listened to what the Lord said and went back as he had told them. That's pretty much a miracle but they didn't cause a civil war. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there, he went out and built Penuel. Jeroboam said to himself, the way things are going now, the kingdom might return to the house of David. If these people regularly go to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will turn, return to the Lord. Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will murder me and go back to the king of Judah. So the king sought advice. Here we go again. Who do you seek advice from? Then he made two golden calves and he said to the people, go to, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. So God makes it so hard for you. We want to make it easier for all of you to follow God. 
We want to make it easier for all of you to trust God. Be careful when you hear that. Because this is what happens. Here is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We want to make it easier for you. So this is what we've built. This is what we've done. Here are two golden calves that you're going to now worship. He set one up in Bethel and put the other in Dan. This led to sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. Jeroboam also built shrines on the high places and set up priests from every class of people who were not Levites. Jeroboam made a festival in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month like the festival in Judah. It's amazing how when we corrupt God, we start putting festivals over his stuff that he told us to do. Like Easter. Easter's not Easter, it's Passover. Easter was put on the festival of Istakar, a foreign god. It doesn't mean we can't say Easter because we know for us it means the resurrection of Jesus, but it's Passover. Like, we've got to be careful because we can do the same things and all of a sudden we start worshiping bunnies and eggs more than we, start, than we worship Jesus. He goes on and he says, Jeroboam made a festival. He, he offered sacrifices on the altar he made. This offering in Bethel to sacrifice the calves he had set up. He also stationed the priests in Bethel. The high priest had set up. He offered sacrifices on the altar he had set up in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month. He chose this month in his own. I mean, this is what we do. We do the same thing. We create something and then we tell everybody, this was from God. Now everybody come, agree with me. This is from God. Let's all worship. Because it's easier. What I'm doing is easier. You want easy. You want better. You want simpler. Let's not make it complicated. What does God say? Well, God told Jeroboam, remember, he said, if you walk in my statutes, if you'll just keep going back to Jerusalem, let the people go back to Jerusalem and sacrifice, you'll be fine. Like, someday I'll bring unity, but you can't go do, like, if you want to be unified, that's what's going to be the unifier. It's the worship. It's the coming to Jerusalem. But if you create your own worship space, it's going to, it's going to be a disaster. And that's exactly what he does. Goes on and says... The priests and the Levites from all the regions throughout Israel took their stand with Rehoboam. For the Levites left their pasture lands, their possessions, and went to Judah and Jerusalem. Because Jeroboam and his sons refused to let them serve as priests of Yahweh. Those from every tribe of Israel who determined in their hearts to seek Yahweh their God followed the Levites to Jerusalem to sacrifice to Yahweh the God of their ancestors. Look at that. They stopped listening to the politicians and they followed the pastors. We're going to listen to the priests. By the way, we're all priests according to the new covenant. We don't need a king because we have one. And we lead each other to that king. We don't need some pastor, okay, who's going to tell us that he'd act like a king and pretend like he's a king to lead us to some great vision. I, God has a vision. You don't need me for God's vision. You've got the word. Now we need each other for prayer and encouragement and accountability and God has given some to be pastors and shepherds and teachers and all the stuff. But I'm not a priest any better than you are. We are priests together of our God. He goes on and he says, So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years because they walked in the way of David and of Solomon. But here's what happens. After a while, Rehoboam loved Maacah, daughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and concubines. He acquired 18 wives and 60 concubines and was, his, and was his father of 28 sons and 60 daughters. Rehoboam appointed Abijah, son of Maacah, as chief among, leader among the brothers. 
intending to make him king. Rehoboam also showed discernment by dispersing some of his sons to all the regions of Judah and Benjamin and all the fortified cities. He gave them plenty of provisions and sought many wives for them. When Rehoboam had established his sovereignty and royal power, he abandoned the law of the Lord. He let all Israel with him because they were unfaithful to the Lord. The Levites were with him. They were praying. They were seeking God. They wanted to see unity and restoration and change brought back. But when things started working well for Rehoboam, I don't need God anymore. It's just the way things are going to be. We're going to be separated. It's going to be a big mess. And oh, well, it's going to do me. You do you, I do me, we're good. This is what Jesus says. I assure you, all these things will come on this generation. All these things that we're seeing happen, Jesus said the same thing is going to come on us. Then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing yet you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's where real blessing is. That's the blessed one. That's true happiness. Let me ask you, are you willing to be gathered to God? Jesus looked at Jerusalem, the place, and he said, I wish Israel would come back. I wish people would come back to this place. I wish they'd come worship me. And I wish now that they would come to the new Jerusalem that I'm building and they would send their prayers to me and to pray towards the place of heaven, but they won't. I long for that. Can I just tell you, Jesus longs for that for you, just like a mother on Mother's Day longs to see her sons and daughters. Just like a mother longs to be with her son and daughter, sit by him on Sunday morning you're so cute, even though you're old and scruffy, like you're 20, 30 years old now. You're still cute to me. Like God wants to gather his people, but we have to submit to him. We have to turn to him. Listen, if you haven't turned to Jesus, would you turn to him? He takes you right as you are. You just got to turn. You got to believe in him. You got to believe in his word. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, he says he will save you. And if you, don't, if you have known him and you've walked with him, let me ask you, what are the things in your life you're turning to that you shouldn't be turning to that you need to turn back to Jesus and back to his people? Just like the Levites turned to Rehoboam when Rehoboam was a mess. There was no other option. This is the church. I've got to turn myself to it. Give myself to it because Jesus gave himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the moms that are here, for the people. Lord, thank you that we can turn to you. We love you. We thank you. Lord, if anyone here has not turned to you, if they've not surrendered to you, I pray today would be the day they do it. Lord, it's just an attitude of the heart. It's not something that they have to earn. It's not something that they have to clean themselves up to do. It's literally just saying, I'm done. And I'm turning this way now. And Lord, if they do that, I pray, if they surrender to you as the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Yahweh who is the Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah and Savior, if they do that, I pray that they would know that you say, you will come into them. You will fill them up. You will help them to walk with you. And Lord, if they do that, I pray they'd tell somebody. Because you tell us that if, we'll, if we won't tell men about you, then it doesn't show that we're really changed. And so I pray that if they do make that decision today to turn, that they would tell someone, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. Help me turn 
fully to God more and more. And for those of us who know you, I pray that we would continue to turn to you. In your name, amen.